Yes, consent is sexy, as the now ubiquitous saying goes, but as Melissa Fibos writes in her new essay collection called Girlhood, consent is also extremely complicated. When Melissa turned 11 and her body began to develop, she says she could instantly feel her value change to the world. And talking to people throughout her life and for the book, it became clear that her experiences in girlhood, the darker ones that aren't as readily acknowledged, they weren't unique or individual only to her. You know, in recent years, we have had this massive hardware upgrade as a culture with the Me Too movements and other things about just how complex it is when we talk about asking and giving consent, how different power dynamics play into things, and just the gray areas of it all. So just a heads up, there is some discussion of unwanted touching, sexual abuse. We don't get into any specific details, but I did want to tell you just in case that's something you don't want to hear today. From The Advocate Magazine, in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is the author, Melissa Phoebos, whose new book, Girlhood, is out on March 30th. I want to start off by talking about consent, which all of the stories deal with in some way. You know, when it comes to sexual consent, we tend to say things like yes means yes and no means no, which really oversimplifies things. Mm -hmm. This book captures what a truly shockingly complicated thing consent is. And I don't think we talk enough about that. Actually, I think we talk about it quite a bit, but we talk about it within a particular set of terms that in the process of writing this book and reflecting on it, I realized don't leave a lot of space for sort of the gray areas in between. And I had this experience where I went to a cuddle party, which I'm sure some of your listeners will be familiar with. Others, not so much. It's pretty much what it sounds like. It's kind of like a sex party, but just cuddling, no sex. And what happened was I gave affirmative consent to a couple of strangers at the cuddle party and I cuddled with them. There was a great emphasis on consent at the cuddle party and we sort of did a whole workshop on consent before the cuddle party even commenced. And nonetheless, I consented to cuddle with a couple of people that I wasn't really that excited to cuddle with and subsequently had like kind of a weird shitty experience and felt pretty gross afterwards and ended up sort of having this question for myself of why as a lifelong feminist and someone who considers herself very fluent in issues around consent why had I said yes when I really would have preferred to say no I set out to try to answer that question. And what I came up with was our experiences with consent don't fall into a binary of yes or no, good and bad, right? And in fact, it's when you grow up in a culture where you're discouraged from ever saying no, it's almost guaranteed that you're going to have an experience of consenting to something that actually doesn't feel that good. And for me, it really opened up this larger topic of what, what do yes and no really mean in a culture where you're prescribed to say yes all the time? Also, I think everyone has experience of saying no and then having to like manage the emotions of the person in front of us. And that can be a big challenge sometimes that makes you just say like, yes, instead. But like, we don't teach how to deal with that. Exactly. It's messy. I'm in a relationship now where it took like the whole first year of our relationship for me to get comfortable in a very welcoming environment to be like, I don't really feel like having sex right now or I'd like to stop now. And my partner is like so encouraging and supportive of that. But I have spent so many years believing and experiencing that as a problem that it took 
a lot of sort of talking and practice and bravery to undo it, which is really sort of like one of the main obsessions, challenges, questions of the book. What kind of work does it take and is it possible to undo that kind of habituation or that kind of social conditioning? And I think like the answer that I got as the reader is Yes, it's possible. No, it's not easy. And no, you might never be done doing that work. Right. Like all kinds of internal work, it might never be done. So you have an interesting perspective, I think, as someone who is bi and you know, dates all genders. Mm-hmm. Just to talk about like the male-female binary for a second, mm-hmm. how do you see consent and what that means, like differing between men and women? Very broadly speaking, my experience as a woman is that I've been conditioned to be agreeable, to accommodate other people's needs, to prioritize my lover's desires ahead of my own, and to say yes as much as possible, right? And so that can get complicated sometimes when you sleep with women because everyone's saying yes all the time. It also means that we have lots of orgasms, like everybody has shitloads of orgasms. (laughs) That's my experience of lesbian sex, at least at the, you know, after a certain age when you're comfortable asking for what you want. But it can also be sort of this like infinite feedback loop of accommodation, you know, where nobody really wants to disappoint or upset anybody. And so it's taken some work for for me to be able to set boundaries with women and to get them to do the same thing. And I think with men, it's like, you know, I have been in a number of serious relationships with men and they were always very sensitive, like interested in affirmative consent. But I really encountered a lot of what I call in the book, empty consent, where I had so many scripts in my mind. We just live in such a heterosexist culture that if you're having heterosex, it's impossible not to have a million scripts downloaded into your brain just from watching movies and commercials and seeing billboards. And we know what it's supposed to look and sound like. So I think when I've slept with men, it's been harder for me to get away from those scripts. And there's a level of performativity that just turns on that I have a little bit more space from in sleeping with women. A lot of the early experiences that you write about that were not consensual, it was happening from such a large number of men. Did a part of you wonder if that's how all men were? Yeah, I assumed that it was. It's interesting. I encountered this a lot when I was writing this book because a lot of my starting points were in my own childhood and my own adolescence. And so at that age, I didn't have any distance from which to observe what was happening. Like there was not a lot of reflection or contextualization. Things just happened. And you know, when you're a young person, if something happens a certain way, even one time, if that's your only reference, then that's how that thing goes, right? And so for me, I don't remember ever thinking, gee, are all men like this? It was just like, a bodily experience that I understood as really consistent, which was that when men wanted to touch you or comment on your body, they did. And that was just how it was. And to use an example, you write that when you turned 11, your body began to develop. And you say that what happened to your body, meaning growing breasts and hips, it changed your value to the world. I think that was shocking for me to read because I would assume that an 11-year-old would never need to worry about being sexualized by anyone, especially those that are like that much older than them. And that's my naivete that I believe that, but I just wonder if that's like a common misunderstanding. I think it is. I think it is because 
if you are a person who doesn't hit on 11 year olds who have developed early, it sounds super crazy and fucked up because it is. (laughs) But it was, again, sort of an incredibly common experience from the girls and women that I spoke to when I was writing this book. And that wasn't actually something that I wondered about because it was so clear. It was not something that happened to me one time. It was something that, I mean, it was a radical shift. And, you know, to be fair, I don't think anyone who looked at me would have said that looks like an 11 year old, but I certainly looked like a 15 year old, maybe a 16 year old, you know, and that definitely seemed okay to lots of people. And I mean, that's also what you get when you're, you live in a culture that fetishizes and sexualizes youth. And, and so realizing that your early experiences were not exceptional, as you say, like, when did you start to realize that it was, it was common? I guess I understood to some extent pretty early into adulthood, just from having friends who were women and talking to them about it. But there is a degree to which I don't think I really fully got it until I've wrote about it. And this is an experience that recurs for me in in terms of writing, because, and I think this is somewhat universal, when you're a kid and something incredibly disturbing or something that makes a deep impression or teaches you something ostensibly about life or the way the world is, it my experience is that it really embeds in your consciousness in a way that sometimes precludes examination later. And so what I'm saying is like at 11, 12, 13 years old, I think I developed a certain narrative or understanding of things that I didn't really question for a really long time. Like I read, there's an essay in the book about being slut shamed in junior high school. And it's something I've sort of referred to obliquely or joked about and like have understood in kind of a vague way that it was shitty (laughs) and not like cruel, but I didn't ever really sort of tell this whole story to anyone until I wrote about it in this book and talked to other women who had had similar experiences. And I was shocked at the similarity between our experiences and in our response to them, how very few of us ever spoke about the details to anyone because that young part of us still felt like it was our fault. And the numbers, the statistics, you know, back up what you're saying, that there's a massive percentage of of young people of all genders actually that do experience i i don't i don't want to like uh, to i don't think we need to like talk about like the exact experiences of being touched but i just want people to know that we're not talking about like a hand on your shoulder we're talking about like hands that go inside your underpants if that's okay to tell people mm-hmm. and, like we're talking about these types of like sexual a- mm-hmm. abuse mm-hmm. And, and yet it seemed like you were hesitant to label it as sexual assault sexual abuse did, did i get that right yep it's sort of like I don't know, the words assault, trauma, abuse, victimhood, they all connote very specific things. And from a super young age, so many of my close friends had experienced the type of assault and abuse that squared with that connotation. Like they had been raped, they had been incested. And my experiences fell in this weird in-between realm where sometimes I consented or didn't say anything and it just happened, or I was groped, but sort of played it off. Or there was like a power imbalance Right, right. There's a power imbalance. And those experiences, especially the ones that I consented to, but that felt terrible and really sort of a affected and defined my relationship to sex and intimacy after that, they just didn't feel 
in the same category as those other traumas or assaults or rapes. And so I just kind of thought of them as like yucky early experiences. It's been really useful for me to sort of dig into those terms and to think about the ways that we might need other terms to name the kinds of experiences that are intrusive and have long lasting consequences and are distinct in some ways from other kinds of trauma or assault, but share a lot with those experiences. And I think that like reading about it in your book for me, it helped to reframe how I think about the perpetrators. You know, I think it's really easy to believe, we want to believe that's just like a quote unquote few bad men. And because that like lets us off the hook. But when we talk about the, the large scale, it's a much larger group that commits these acts. And that is a harder pill to swallow. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know, something that I have sort of struggled with over time and, and write about some in the book is also just the way that even if the other person has no idea what's going on, if we, if I subject myself to a sexual situation, an intimate situation that I'm not comfortable with, it has many of the same consequences as if the other person pressured me, even if they didn't, you know? So I've had experiences having sex with women, men, non-binary people that felt in the aftermath similar to a kind of traumatic experience, but the other person didn't do anything wrong. It was just that I didn't know how to stop when I needed to. I mean, I think too, like part of the cruelest parts of like this is that this is something that like shapes your entire life and that most often the other person involved, it's like unmemorable too. Exactly. Yeah, this is one of the reasons why I think it's important It felt important to write about because it feels important to be having those conversations because, you know, our language around consent and the ways that that's been integrated into, you know, institutionally has come a long way. But there is still so much room for experiences that are just not spoken about, you know, and then we have no map for how to navigate. And that conversation feels still at a really sort of rudimentary stage. You know, like we need new words for for some kinds of experiences so that we can talk about them. Well, that's kind of why I love the title, Girlhood, because it'd be so easy to envision it with like an exclamation point, a pink cover. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. I struggled a lot with the title, actually, because there's a kind of layer of irony in it, right? Because girlhood also carries these connotations and and those are like innocent, femme, idealized, basically not the things that I wrote about in the book. (laughs) You know, like everything I wrote about in the book, none of what I wrote about in the book is what sort of person on the street's mind would conjure at the word girlhood, right? Right, but you let people know what they're getting into on the very first page. You write, girlhood was a darker time for many than we're often willing to acknowledge. Yeah, and I think I wanted to excavate that word and scoop out all of the untrue meanings and associations that it has and really sort of put on that shelf some very real, very ordinary experiences that are not what people think about when they think about the word girlhood or the experience of it. Well, tell me this, all this sexual desire was being pointed at you. Were you also experiencing sexual desire yourself? Yes. I mean, I think that is part of what made the experience so complicated for me is that I was like a very desirous, passionate, kind of sexual young person. 
So I would, you know, maybe share an attraction or have excitement about a situation. And then it would veer into a place I wasn't ready for and I wasn't comfortable with and I didn't know how to extract myself from. And it was sort of like this really horrible dead end. And this seems like a kind of miracle to me now. I managed to maintain a really healthy relationship to myself sexually. Like I I was an avid masturbator. I masturbated the way that I've only ever read about young men doing. (laughs) And I know that I'm not the only one, but it's not like a trope. You know, people don't write about adolescent girls whacking off constantly, but I was. Large credit is due to my family for this, for never sort of teaching us to be ashamed of our desire or our bodies. But I had a really robust, really healthy relationship to sort of self-pleasure and my own body sort of apart from what it meant to other people in public or intimately. And that has persisted pretty much for my whole life. And in some ways I think provided a kind of map when I was ready to redefine my sexual relationship to other people. Oh, because it's one way to show your yourself, your body, like, hey, this isn't all bad. Right, yeah. And I felt, you know, like in experiences of desire and sexuality alone, I never felt self-conscious. I never felt ashamed. I could stop whenever I wanted. I was adventurous and playful. And that is now the kind of sexual relationship I'm able to have with my partner. But it took a really long time to be all of those things with another person. Yeah, so everything I'm talking about is all just sex-focused. When it comes to relationships, I thought it was so interesting that you write that from the time you were 16 to 32, you were more or less in back-to-back monogamous serious relationships. You almost write about it as if you kept just like meeting people and just like accidentally getting into long-term relationships. Yep. And so to stop that pattern, you took a year of celibacy. I think you were 32 at this time. I was 35, actually. 35. Mm -hmm. And don't let me put words in your mouth, but you did this to just get to know yourself and to stop being codependent. Is that right? That is right. Yeah. I really did sort of just get into relationships. You know, I'm kind of a heat-seeking missile in some ways, you know? Like, I really just got so much energy from desire and closeness and intimacy and romance. And I was just so oriented towards that and toward other people for so much of my life. I had the idea probably by the time I was in my late 20s, I was like, hmm, this is interesting. I am definitely like a serial monogamist. And my relationships almost always overlapped just a little bit towards the end. And I had, in my early 30s, I had a horrible breakup. And I remember at the end of that relationship, my mother was like, maybe you should take a break. And I was like, I know, I definitely should take a break, but I'm already in another relationship. (laughs) Um, And then, you know, that turned out to be like really intense. You know, I wrote a whole book about it (laughs) that we talked about last time I saw you. And after that relationship ended, I was like, okay, it's time to take a break. And then I got into like five more mini relationships, but it was almost like this experience of sort of diminishing returns, kind of like, you know, I've been sober for a really long time. And at the end of any addict or alcoholics, like career of drinking and using, it's just like, the substance doesn't really work anymore, but you keep trying to use it. And that's how I sort of, in hindsight, look at those last few relationships. It was just like my my regular cycle in a relationship, but within just a few months over and over and over again. And then finally I was like, okay, I have to be really intentional about this. 
And yeah, and I was celibate for almost a year. And it was challenging for the first few weeks. And after that, it was the best year of my life. Best year, why? I had never been alone inside my life or even inside myself because being codependent or even just like being in a healthy relationship, you know, it's hard to really get away from negotiating someone else's needs. And when I completely extricated myself from all entanglements, there was nobody else there. It was just me. I lived alone and every other area and every other relationship in my life benefited from it. Like I wrote a ton, my spiritual life grew, my creative practice grew, my friendships had never been stronger. And maybe most notably, just came to understand myself apart from what other people, how other people saw me or how, what other people wanted me to be. And so there are ways that I think I had never really known what my actual preferences were for. Like, what time did I want to eat dinner? You know, like, how did I want to celebrate my birthday when I wasn't negotiating a partner's input on those things? That is so interesting. But it's also slightly hilarious that there's so many people, like, just, like, dying to be in relationships. And you had to take a vow of celibacy, so you weren't in one. I definitely got a lot of shit from my friends (laughs) who were involuntarily celibate. But, you know, I don't think it's, like... I really just think that there are people who are oriented in that direction and it's a burdensome experience and there are people who are oriented in the opposite way and that's also a burdensome experience. Like there's no superior inclination, you know, like there is a middle point of some kind of balance that I think is probably the best place to be, you know, where you are comfortable being alone and understand when you need time alone, but are also able to sort of be intimate and honest and and closely connected in relationships. But yeah, I have definitely had people sort of come out of the woodwork as I've written about the celibacy and been like, oh no, I have also been in relationships my whole life and now I think I have to be celibate. And I'm like, it's not for me to say, it's not for me to say, but It was a really, really good experience. It really was. You know, you have an example in the book about your current partner, Danica, and it felt like a foreign country to me. You're out of town somewhere and you ask her, will you tell me something that you like about me? And I know that like probably like reveals my trauma, (laughs) but to like ask that is so vulnerable and it's like a level of intimacy that I think that that would, those words would like turn to ash in my mouth. I totally know that feeling. Yeah, it really took like every single minute of my life that I lived before I met her to be ready for that shit. (laughs) And those, I mean, I am like, my worst nightmare for my whole life was to be needy or desperate seeming. So, which had like all of these horrible repercussions of never asking for what I wanted and so on and so forth. But by the time I met her, I was like, okay, I really want to have a relationship where everybody can ask for and get what they need and also say no if they can't give the other person what they want. And that has to be okay. Danica has been in therapy for even like her whole life, more than I've been in. But early in our relationship, we were in sort of the like honeymoon phase and we both sort of acknowledged how much reassurance people need and want and how good it feels. And we basically made a pact to always be able to ask things like, tell me something you like about me or tell me something you're looking forward to in our future or tell me a memory that you treasure about our past. 
So not only had you learned to be able to say that when you felt it, but you also knew that the person you were talking to could like take yep. that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. She's even better than I am at it for sure. And we actually have sort of codified it in this way where we call, she heard of this term somewhere, I can't remember where, called honey roasts, where it's sort of like a roast, but sweet, where people just tell you nice things about yourself. And a honey roast is one thing that you like about us, one thing that you like about me, and one shallow thing that you like about me. And so we'll be like, it happens every day at some point, sometimes multiple times per day, where we'll just be like, cleaning up the breakfast dishes and one of us will be like, can I have a honey roast? And we'll be like, oh, sure. And we'll sort of trade honey roasts. And now we have all different kinds of roasts. We have future roasts. We have vacation roasts. We have birthday roasts. We have comfort roasts. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it, is, it is an atmosphere of bounty, the likes of which I really never even imagined. That is incredible. Before I let you go, I want to talk about your first book just for a second. Sure. That was Whip Smart mm -hmm. about your time working as a dominatrix. And I just wonder about how we categorize writers and like we kind of typically place like a single identity on people. And I wonder if now, 10 years later, does being a former dominatrix still consume your identity and like the public's perception of you? I'm happy to say no, I don't think it does. Although it has really taken the whole 10 years to sort of get away from it. I think, you know, I remember before I published my first book, my agent at the time said, last chance, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, of course I want to do this. It's my dream to be a writer. And he was like, no, like publishing a book about a topic like this is it's going to be out there forever. Like, and for at least a while, you're going to be known as the dominatrix writer. Are you okay with that? I was like, yeah, sure. I had no experience to base my confidence on about that, you know, and it was challenging sometimes to have sort of every interview or every Q&A at a reading go back to the dominatrix stuff. But at this point, it's been 10 years. The books that I've written that aren't primarily about having been a dominatrix and a heroin addict now outweigh the number of books I've written about that subject by two thirds. And so I do think I've gotten away from it. I won't ever entirely, like, I don't know who writes Wikipedia pages, but it's definitely featured intensely on my Wikipedia page. But I do feel like I've, I've gotten a little bit of distance from that identity, thank God. <laughs> but you're not running from it entirely. You do write about it in this book. You touch on it. That's right. And as we've talked about you, it seems like are such a different person from the person who was a dominatrix, from the person who wrote that book about it, and now this person 10 years later. How did it feel different to revisit that time? It's different every time. And, and this is something that I felt conflicted about earlier in my career because, you know, when I was writing my second book, occasionally some like addiction or dominatrix related material would sort of pop up and want to be included. And I was like, ah, no, go away. I already wrote a whole book about you. I can't be the dominatrix lady anymore. But as an artist, I have learned that it's impossible to sort of send away things when they really come knocking during the creative process. So I, I let it in and I wrote a little bit about it. And it turns out that my perspective on it changed dramatically. And it was really interesting for me to discover that in writing the second book. And so when I was writing this third book, I had that reference. And when it sort of popped up again, I was like, all right, let's see what's there. And once again, it was like a totally different perspective from that perspective I'd had as a, you know, 26 or seven year old when I was writing my first book. And actually, 
something that I've heard back from readers pretty often is that it's a valuable experience as a reader to be able to observe a writer reflecting on experiences multiple times and demonstrating the way that perspective can change over time. Like what a relief that we don't have to hold on to the first story we have about something that happened to us, right? Well, also I think a less skilled writer would not have ordered these essays in that way where you start off at girlhood, you kind of take yourself to adulthood, and then the last essay say actually is about a period in your life when you still were using heroin. Mm-hmm. I think like another writer would not have like wanted to like leave the writer with like mm-hmm. Melissa used heroin, you know, <laughs> right. and like send the close the book. Yeah, I think it's important. You know, I wanted to end with that essay because it really sort of lines up that younger self with the that older person who was writing the essay. And it was important for me to show at the end the difference, you know, like even now, when I meet people sometimes who have read my first book, when they meet me, they're like, Oh, you're not what I expected. And I'm like, what does that mean? And they basically say like, you're so much softer than I thought, you know, like you're so much more lighthearted and like, you just seem like a gentler sort of soul than you imagine a former dominatrix and heroin addict would be. And, you know, in this new book and in that last essay, particularly, I think I was trying to show the work that it took to sort of soften in those ways. I try not to have contrived happy endings because it it creates unrealistic expectations, you know? Happy endings are always temporary and they're always hard won. I think that's an amazing place to leave it. Thank you so much for the amazing conversation. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. It's always such a pleasure to talk to you. And that is Melissa Phoebos. Her new book, Girlhood, is out on March 30th. I think you'll love it. It is very likely going to be on my very own personal best of the year list. The other books of hers that we mentioned are called Abandon Me and Whip Smart. And then big, big, big announcement. Here it is. I'm out of my mind excited to tell you that next week we will be back with Amy freaking Ray of the Indigo Girls, aka the greatest band of all time. So that is next week. Make sure that you're subscribed. You do not want to miss it. And as always, if you enjoyed the show, doing things like leaving a review on Apple Podcasts and posting about us on social media are the biggest things you can do to help our show continue to grow. So thank you so much to everyone who does that. It really does make a big, big difference. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week. Bye.